Um, we're going to be in 1 Kings today. Um, we've been jumping around in this series, which has been kind of fun. Um, I really love being anchored in a section of Scripture in um, 90% of our preaching. That's, that's the way we do it. In this series, for the last couple of months, we've kind of jumped around a little bit. We spent some time in the Gospels talking about encountering Jesus and those that had face-to-face encounters with the Son of God and Jesus. We spent some time in Genesis looking at how certain people encountered God in interactions, in visions, in appearances, those sort of things. We sort of honed in on the family of Abraham there for the month of October. And in the month of November, we're looking at these incredible manifestations of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament. We talk about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and the, the, the New Testament all the time. Sorry, I think I said New Testament. We're going to the Old Testament to look at the Holy Spirit in November. So last week we saw the effect of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit on an idol. And this week we're going to look at um, one of God's followers, Elijah. But the story of this week is a story of victory. It's very closely followed by despair. And it's like in a situation, I think we've all been in a situation, where we go from a moment of such a great high, of this like euphoria of, of victory and satisfaction, and then all of a sudden it's, it's ripped away, and the lowest of lows comes in the aftermath of the great high. And the degree to which the high was high makes the low feel so much lower. So in a simple sporting analogy, it would be like when you think you've won a game, when, when, you're, when you're leading the game, and then victory is there, it is at hand. And in the last minute, a last minute drive, a Hail Mary play, something like that just snatches the victory away and the other team takes the win. And you want to say, I feel good because it was a hard fought game and it was close, but nobody ever really feels that way. Because that last second defeat, it just hurts. And it hurts so bad because you were right there. And then, bam, where you thought there was victory, there's actually a crushing defeat. Elijah encounters God in the midst of despair. But the crazy thing is, the despair is coming off of an incredible, an incredible victory. And there's so much about this passage that we have to learn, not just about God, not just about Elijah, but about us. That's our goal in in all of these encounters in this series, is to kind of zoom in on somebody that encounters God and see what what is the Bible saying to us through that particular encounter. So we're going to um, pick up in uh, 1 Kings 19. And we're just going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read 1 through 18. And then we're going to talk about some stuff. We're going to back up and give some greater context. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid. He arose, and he ran for his life, 
and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Okay, so something has happened. We're going to talk about what happened before this in a minute. But, but notice the setting here. We're going to zoom in on Elijah and what he's experiencing here. He's afraid, and he's on the run. And he's so afraid, and he's so on the run, that he actually just wants to be alone. He has a servant that's traveling with him, and in verse four there, we, or verse three there, we see he leaves the servant behind and goes on by himself. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, traveling a whole day into the middle of nowhere. This is not the edge of the wilderness. This is deep in the wilderness, deeply separated from anyone else. And he sits under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough, Lord. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. That is the height of despair. This is a a deep, dark, spiritual depression that has left him in this place where he would just rather die and rather it be all over than continue going on living in the pain and despair that he's facing. And so verse 5, he lays down and he sleeps under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again and the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said arise and eat for the journey is too great for you and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb the mount of God so here's this despair that closes in around him and then God sends an angel a messenger from him to come and to feed him and restore him so that he has the energy to go on another long journey. But this time, to the Mount of, of God, to Mount Horeb. And then in verse 9, we, this is where we see this encounter. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Here's the hope. The word of the Lord comes, and he says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The second time that exact interaction happened. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, 
the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abdel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there it is. There's the story. There's the encounter. Elijah, at a moment of complete despair, wishing that his life could just end, asking God to take his life. And God shows up. And he shows up not in power through an earthquake or through wind or through fire. Those things precede the coming of his presence. But his presence is in this instance in the form of a still small voice. So our steps for unpacking this today, we're going to look at the story itself. We're going to look at some principles or or some points about how God meets Elijah. And then we're going to look at what it means for us and how God meets us. So first, the story itself. We've read it, but I want to give some context because there's so much more to this story than the story itself. Because the setting of, of Ahab and Jezebel and the, steady of, the setting of all that happens right before this, let me tell you, the setting of this story, chapter 19 in the book of 1 of, um, Kings, is so surprising that commentators stumble over it. Commentators, rational, trained, academic commentators, look at this passage and say, there's a gap here. Something has to be left out. Because how does 18 move to 19 quite like that? And we're going to see there's actually some great power in understanding how 18 moves into 19. First, the story of Ahab and Jezebel. There was sort of a political alliance marriage at first. Ahab was the king of Israel. Jezebel was from the land of Tyre and Sidon. And there was a marriage between the two of them that was a form of a political alliance in a sense. But Jezebel and Ahab's marriage is really unique in Scripture. There's lots of bad kings of Israel. But the influence of Jezebel as the king's wife, as the queen, is unique in its significance in that she's actually able to not just mix the worship of Yahweh, the one true God and the God of Israel. She doesn't just influence the mixture of worshiping the one true God with worshiping other gods. Uh, Jezebel's influence is unique, and actually, she, in a, through her influence, makes Baal worship the sort of institutionalized state religion of Israel. It is much more significant, the idolatry in Israel in this time, than at any other period. In other periods, there's what you call syncretism, where you mix one religion, one faith with another. You mix worship of one God with worship of another God. That's what I was talking about last week when I talked about paganism, just kind of whatever works mentality. It's paganism is pragmatism. If it works to worship multiple gods, maybe you just worship multiple gods, this superstitious sort of mindset of worship. Um, This is more significant in this period of history. The worship of Yahweh has completely been replaced by the worship of Baal. That's how significant this change is. So then at the beginning of verse 18, Elijah goes to Ahab the king and he confronts him. And he says, this is a problem. There's a great famine in the land in verse 18. 
And Elijah says, Ahab, I have a proposition for you. I'm tired of this. You're probably tired of this. We, we need to make a decision of which God we're going to serve as a nation. And then we're going to ask that God to end this famine for us. But we've got to do it. We can't go on with this historic worship of Yahweh that we used to do. It's basically been eradicated, but there's still some that are faithful to Yahweh. But mostly people are faithful to Baal because that's what the king and queen say to do, worship Baal. So most people have sort of got on board with that. And Elijah's like, listen, I have a proposition. Let's have a contest. Let's have a competition. Invite whoever you want to invite. But here's the stakes, say Elijah. You bring all the prophets of Baal you can find. There's 450 of those, by the way. And I, Elijah, I'll come by myself. One prophet of Yahweh, the one true God, 450 prophets of Baal. Let's meet on Mount Carmel. Nice mountain, big, and let's have a contest. So here's how the contests go. They each take bowls to sacrifice. And the goal is, you have an altar to Baal, built and, and, uh, and attended to by 450 prophets of Baal. And then you have, a temple, uh, you have an altar to Yahweh. Okay? So the altar to Baal, 450 people working on this, um, and they're sacrificing the bull. And then the idea is okay, that once the fire comes and burns up the offering, it's a sign from God that the famine is going to end. So you actually have two requests. You want fire to come and burn the sacrifice, but you also want rain to come and to enliven the land. Baal was actually the god of fertility in their religion, and so this was a significant advantage for Baal in their minds, right? Fertility meant land that is fertile. So the god of fertility should be able to send rain and end a famine, especially when you got 450 prophets calling out. So not just Ahab and Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal come to this contest. There's a whole spectator section too. Because this is a pretty significant event. Wouldn't you want to know? Let's put it in, in modern day terms. Let's say we could end it all. We could end all of the question of which God is real. Think about all the various ideologies of our day. If we could just plan an event, plan a public contest in which, which one God actually proved himself to be true. And you never had to wonder if if one religion was true or another religion was true or atheism was true or ideology of the day, so whether it's secular humanism or atheism or Islam or Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism or, or whatever, you could get all of your isms together and have this huge contest and you set the stakes together and anyone can come and you can see the contest. Who wins? And it's really clear that the stakes of the game are so clear that you're going to know who wins. Because when fire comes to one place and not the other, you know that, that God won. Imagine if it wasn't Mount Carmel, if it was Times Square, if it was the, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., or if it was the center place of our culture, which is actually not a place but the Internet, and just broadcast live on the Internet to where you could see all the ideologies of our day in a physical competition for some miraculous event. You would want to watch. You would want to show up. Well, that's what Israel was thinking. They showed up. So not just the prophets of Baal, but lots of just ordinary citizens of Israel showed up. And you probably know what happened. But basically, they spent hours 
The prophets of Baal, go from, they go first. They go from early morning to noon. It's about midday. They've been going at it for four or five hours at this point, and they are crying out to God. They're dancing. They're doing everything. They get desperate. They start cutting themselves in desperation, hoping that God, that, that Baal, their God, would send fire to this altar, and it's just not going. And Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 27, he starts mocking them. 1 Kings 18, 27 says, Cry louder, he's a God. He says either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Yeah, that's what it says in Hebrew as well. It says your God is either asleep or he's on the toilet. That's the literal translation in Hebrew. That's what it says. You need to wake him up. You need to cry louder. It's mockery from Elijah. Elijah is saying, you guys can't be serious, right? You've tried this already. You're still going the same direction. You're still thinking you're going to get there eventually. So finally, Elijah's like, all right, my turn. And so he goes and he gets big jugs of water. And he has his servants douse the altar with big jugs of water, not once, not twice, three times, Gallons and gallons of water to where there's a moat literally around the area of the altar. And it's just, everything is just sopping wet. And what does he do? He calls out. 1 Kings 18, 37 through 40. This is Elijah's prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you. What's Elijah's goal? To look good? No. To get his position of respect in, a, in, in society? No. He just wants the people to know the truth. That's the only goal. I just want the people to know the truth. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, this is, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. How does fire consume dust? I don't know, but that's a pretty hot fire. The fire licked up the water that was in the trench, and when all the people saw it, hundreds, thousands of people, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Adonai, he is God. And Elijah said, we're done here. Right? In Elijah's mind, it's over. Everybody knows. There's no way Ahab and Jezebel can keep doing their thing. There's no way they can continue to believe what they believe and lead the nation in the direction they're going. There's no way. Look, we, went, we did all the theatrics. We, did all the, we, we made it clear. And they did their crazy stuff over here. And I said one simple prayer. And God wins. It's not that Elijah wins. It's that Yahweh wins. And he said, it's clear now, right? So he says, guys, here's what we've got to do. We've got to get rid of those prophets of Baal so that we never turn back. And the thousands of Israelites that are gathered on the mountain, under Elijah's direction, they go and they kill those prophets of Baal. They seize them. They don't let one escape. And Elijah then looks over at Ahab and he says, hey, Ahab, this was just part one. Now the rain's coming. You better get on your chariot 
and you better hurry up and get home or you're going to get rained out. So then Ahab hops on his chariot and they see a storm cloud coming in the distance and the storm cloud starts coming in and Elijah, this is one of the weird but somewhat cool parts of the story. You can read it, end of chapter 18. Elijah runs. Ahab gets on his chariot to go down the mountain back to the, back to the capital, back to the palace to tell his wife all that has happened and to sort of regroup and say what comes next. And the whole time, Elijah is running. And it says he's running under the power of the, of the Spirit of God. This cool thing where he's so empowered. The presence of God is so thickly on him after that incredible display of power that now he can just run and run for miles. And he goes and he runs to celebrate. And then, chapter 19. And do you see why the, the rational, educated, intelligent commentators can look at that and say something else had to happen? Because Elijah saw the power of God. Elijah saw fire fall down from heaven. Elijah ran, empowered by the Spirit. And now, in verse 19, all of a sudden, utter despair, utter despondency. He's ready to end his life. How? I think that the commentators that think that, they bring their intelligence, logic, and reason, but they miss what it's like to actually live a life with real emotions and follow the Spirit of God in ministry and live the ups and downs of people's hearts and minds and interactions. There's something about real life that feels right about this story, that feels true. Because if you've ever been in that spiritual high, if you've ever been in that place where you're so excited and you see God working and you think we've reached the breakthrough, when a fall comes after that, it hurts so much more. And that's what Elijah's dealing with. Because everything he wanted happened except for one thing. And what was that one thing? Ahab and Jezebel. He didn't change their mind. And he didn't change their place. They believed the same things they did before that, and they were in the same position of authority and power they were in before. And so it, it felt like it had to, in verse 19, the transition from chapter 18 to 19, what is happening here is he thought, I have the answer, I know it needs to happen when God's Spirit moves in power, everyone will know, there will be no question, and then all of a sudden, verse 19, everything went according to plan, except society didn't change. All the power was displayed. God's presence was there and it moved completely and the world was the same as it was before. Worship of Baal was still the state religion. Jezebel and Ahab could still command the army of the nation to go and kill Elijah, God's true prophet. And all those people that had turned against Baal worship on the mountain, they walked off the mountain, it back into normal life, and they were still under the authority and the leadership of the worldly power of Ahab and Jezebel. And think about how despairing that would feel. You think, finally God moved. Finally things are going to change. And nothing changes. That's why this story makes sense to be in such a moment of despair. So that's the story. And following the Spirit of the God sometimes for us feels like that. But let's look at 
how God ministers to Elijah in three profound ways. Rest, restoration, and refocus. Back to 19, where we started, Elijah is all alone in the wilderness. His servant is a day's journey away from him. Anyone else is farther than that away. And God sees his despondency, sees his desire to die, and God sends an angel. And the first thing the angel does, see, Elijah's resting, but Elijah's resting in despair and frustration and, and hunger. And so the first thing God has to do to minister to Elijah is incredibly practical. He gives him something to eat. The angel bakes a cake. And you know what kind of cake it was, right? Low-hanging fruit. Angel food cake. We knew that, right? <laughs> you were thinking it. I just had to be the one to say it because I have the microphone. It's fine. Um, but the angel makes him a cake. He eats a cake. And it's like the best meal that Elijah's ever had. You know that in certain contexts, simple meals feel all so much better. And then what does Elijah do after the meal? He gets real rest. He gets true rest. And you can see that what God is doing to minister to his servant Elijah is he's saying the first thing you need to do, Elijah, is fill your stomach and go back to sleep. And if you just rest, and if you... Here's the thing that rest does for God's servant, Elijah. Rest ensures him that Elijah's not the one in control. This, this, is, this is the incredible thing about following Jesus about following the Spirit of God is that rest is commanded, rest is directed, rest is exemplified. And so much what rest does for us is it reminds us you're not in control. And so it doesn't actually matter if you work six days or seven days. I'm in control of the results no matter what God says. So go ahead and work six days and rest on the seventh day and what you're going to see is if you try to work seven days, you're going to get the same return for your labor as you would after six. The manna in the wilderness was a, was a representation of that. You can't, you can't gather manna on the Sabbath. You can't keep it for a day after I give it unless it's the day before the Sabbath. God puts pictures all through his scripture of what he's trying to tell us is you need rest. And even Elijah who was God's representative, and think about it, Elijah was far more outnumbered in the culture of his day than we are in the culture of our day. Let's think about it that way. You think that the culture is against us, you think the world is against Christ and against his church, and we're the radical minority, we're the only people that think like we do, and it seems like the world is out to get us, and the world is thriving, and evil is thriving. It was worse for Elijah. He said, God, I'm the one. I'm the only one. And from his vantage point, he was the only one. Now God's going to change that by refocusing. He's going to correct his eyesight here in a minute. But, but what God is first having him do is saying, the first thing you need, Elijah, is a good meal and a good nap. And then I can deal with you. And brothers and sisters, with all of the stress, with all of the anxiety, we live in a society that that increases stress and anxiety and is built off of stress and anxiety. And stress and anxiety are the main reasons why we get things done in the culture in which we live. And it taints everything. And I'm telling you, the word of God still stands. We need rest. And sometimes what God needs to do with you in order to meet with you, in order to, to show you himself in his presence, is first get you to just slow down. 
I'm supposed to be talking about God meaning Elijah, not God meaning you right now. That's, that's like the next point. But anyway, um, still, how God meets Elijah, rest. Elijah needs rest. Next, restoration. When Elijah's physical needs had been met, all of a sudden, you see his ears perk up and he seems more ready to listen. His hope is coming back. And so the physical needs are met, and now sometimes that enables us, not just in Elijah's lives, but in our lives and the lives of people around us, we see this principle come true that meeting physical needs is sometimes necessary to meet spiritual needs. Because sometimes those physical needs, that, that hunger, that, that want, that, that emptiness, if you can help fill that, the eyes are clearer, the ears are clearer to hear the word of the Lord. And so the barrier of physical hunger is removed from Elijah. His energy is restored through the rest, and now he's ready to truly, truly hear from God. Rest leads to restoration. That is how we encounter God. Not in a place of, of stress and anxiety, but God takes us from, a, from that place of stress and anxiety, and he can move us into rest and restoration. But the, the, the gap that some of us feel is this unwillingness to just go there, into the rest, into the quiet. Think about how God moves here. Uh, in fact, the author of 1 Kings goes to great pains to show you this is a surprising story. Because he says, first, there was, there was a mighty storm, but God wasn't there. There was an earthquake, and God wasn't there. There was a fire, and God wasn't there. The narrative is written in a poetic, beautifully descriptive way to show you that what you're supposed to think as the reader is that God is in those powerful things. But he's not. He's not in those powerful things. Because the first thing he's doing in Elijah is he's not going to shock him awake. He's going to move in his gentleness. He's going to move in, in humility. Think about all we've looked at so far, okay? Think about the ways we've looked at God interacting with people over the, these last two months. How Jesus comes. Does Jesus come in thunder and lightning and earthquake? No, he comes as the child of a virgin in a very humble city. When Jesus meets with, with Nicodemus, is it pomp and circumstance? No. When Jesus meets with the woman who's bleeding for 12 years, is it pomp and circumstance? Well, it's a crazy crowd, but he actually fades away. He allows the crowd to fade away. He doesn't care about the crowd for a moment, and he uniquely focuses on one individual to love and care for that individual in his gentleness, in his humility, in his care and concern for a person. That's how God meets with people. Think about Abraham. Did God show Abraham his power? Yes. God was, God was moving in fire with Abraham, but not toward Abraham. The, the same interaction we looked at where God is promising Abraham a child and Sarah laughs and says, yeah, you're right. we're so old. There's no way. That same interaction is the interaction that leads to fire and sulfur raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But think about this. You're, you're, as we weave together all these narratives in our minds, we start to see something really powerful about the way God is working here, about the way God works as a principle in general. When God is moving in power and fire and lightning and storm and earthquake, that's how he moves in judgment. 
And when he moves in salvation, sure, sometimes we see some, some power and strong and some fire from heaven. But usually when he's moving in salvation, it's still a small voice. It's more humble. It's more gentle. It's Jesus coming as a child. It's Jesus allowing himself to be sacrificed. So the God who can, who can rain down fire on Mount Carmel to, to burn up a sacrifice, he does that when he wants to judge those who are worshiping idols. That's why he sends fire. But when he wants to minister to his servant, it's not fire. It's a still small voice. Think about the way God moves all throughout Scripture the way God meets people, and the way God is meeting you. Sometimes you're calling out, you're looking for a sign. You want the fire and the wind and the, and the hurricane and the, and the earthquake. And what you really need is the simple, still small voice of Jesus restoring you. Jesus calling you to rest. And Jesus saying, I'm still here. I'm still with you. Let's keep going. That's the refocus of this last part. Elijah had lost his way. Elijah misunderstood the mission. Elijah had basically gone into the wilderness to rethink his whole life and to rethink this whole calling and mission thing because it didn't go as planned. Everything was building towards the crescendo of Mount Carmel, and that was not the crescendo. The crescendo was a still small voice. He thought the highlight of his life was going to be Mount Carmel. I'm sure he had fond memories of Mount Carmel for the many years after that. But really, what God was doing in Elijah was moving him not to Mount Carmel, but to the wilderness for that still small voice. Look at the refocusing that takes place here. When God finally gets him, gets, gets the hangriness off of him, gets him to rest a little bit, he comes to him and he says in verse um, 15, Go home. <laughs> Elijah, this is, you, you got yourself some food. I showed up. You got some rest. In verse 15, basically, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, go anoint a new king of, Israel, of Syria. And then, go anoint a new king of Israel. Because I don't like either of the kings that are there now. God, God makes that very clear. That's why he's saying, these kings are not my kings. Let's go anoint two more kings. But you know, Elijah, you just told me you were the only one. So here's Elisha. Here's a younger guy for you to love, mentor, invest your life in, and turn over everything to him. You're not alone, Elisha, or Elijah. You thought you were alone. You said you're the only one left. I'm going to give you Elisha, and he's going to be with you every day from this point, and he's going to continue. He is there as your reminder you're not alone. But hey, guess what else? You're not just a little wrong. It's not just that you missed one dude in the nation of Israel and there's one other faithful guy besides you and his name is Elisha. No, Elijah, you told me you were the only one and here's what I'm really going to do to surprise you. I'm going to show you 7,000 others. Think about that. Think about that. What he's, what he's doing is he's, he's realigning his vision. He's refocusing Elijah's outlook on life. He thought this mission had been a failure all the way through. And what God tells him is, he's like, no, actually, it's not just you. It's Elisha too. And Elisha is ready under your leadership to take that role and to be my representative amongst the people. But you and Elisha, you're going to have 7,000 people with you following you. You're not going to be alone. 
Because I'm not just working with you. I'm working in the nation as a whole. And you're not alone. Think about the power of that statement. And think about all of the ways that had to come back into Elijah's mind of how God had worked in the past. You know, Old Testament Israel, they know the Word of God better than we do. Elijah knew all the stories. Elijah knew all the stories of the Exodus and the Red Sea, of, of Abraham and all that. He knew all of, the, all of the faithfulness, and he, in that moment, saw that God was refocusing his vision and telling him, you're seeing the world incorrectly. I'm up to more than you see. And if all you see is what's right in front of you, you're missing it. There's so much going on beyond the scenes that God's presence is doing that you're missing. So what does this mean for us in the way we follow Jesus? I already basically gave you the one point because I couldn't stop talking about it. You have to rest too. Just like Elisha, or just like Elijah. See, I introduced Elisha and now I can't get straight in my mind. Um, just like Elijah needed rest, you need rest. And some of you, sorry, some of us, don't feel the presence of God because we're too busy for the presence of God. Because we have all these schedules, all these tasks, all these things to do, and we get so busy that we lose time for the things that matter most. When Al was here on Saturday, he was talking to us, Al Whittingham, last Saturday at our prayer conference, and he just said, don't be busier than Jesus. He said if Jesus would get up early in the morning to pray, and if Jesus was, was just characteristically unhurried and moving deliberately in all that he did and not overscheduling himself with meetings for, for healings and teachings and all of those things that he could have occupied his time with but was continually making room for prayer to the Father to reconnect with the Father, then if you don't have time to pray, you're busier than Jesus and that's not where you want to be. And how are you going to meet with the presence of God if you're so scheduled, so hurried, so stressed, so anxious that everything is so busy you don't have time to pray? Let me tell you something. You are too busy to not pray. Life is too heavy to not pray and to not rest in His presence. But you also need some restoration. You need to worry about your, your physical health and your physical needs. And so then for us, not just in how we meet God, but how we do ministry in the name of God, we are not just, and hear me on this, we are not just as a church, as believers, as followers of Jesus, concerned about spiritual needs. Our spiritual needs are the most important thing to be concerned about. Absolutely right. But so often, when God is moving to meet people's spiritual needs, he is also moving to meet their physical needs, to put food in a stomach, to put clothes on their back, to give a home to someone that doesn't have a home, to give a family to someone who doesn't have a family. The church, followers of Jesus, we must, we must emphasize restoring those people who are hurting and broken because their physical needs are not being met. That is our call too. That is our mission too. Because Elijah just gave us a picture that sometimes as you minister to somebody's spiritual needs, you've got to get through the physical blockade first. So we love God by loving people. And we love people by being concerned about the lack of food in the stomach, the lack of clothes on their back, the lack of resources for the basic resources of life.
So we move, brothers and sisters, not just into God in our relationship with God through our own restoration, but we move for the restoration of all peoples. And we move for the good of all peoples. That's our calling too. And finally, you and I need these continual patterns of refocusing. And we need continual patterns of refocusing, continuing, continual meetings with God in which He shapes our vision and recasts our vision and helps us realign our sight with what is most important. We need those meetings desperately. So plan it. Can you plan revival? I told you last week you kind of can't. But here's what I want you to plan. I want you to plan in the patterns and the practices of your life to experience the power of God. Because because here's the reality. We can get really caught up about fire coming down from heaven. We can long for that and we can want to see that. But what God wants for us is not for us to want Mount Carmel, but for us to want Mount Horeb. And we're so fascinated with Mount Carmel, so excited about Mount Carmel. We want that fire from heaven. And he is sitting there giving us, waiting for us to just carve out the space in our schedule for us to have a Mount Horeb experience where the still small voice shows up and leads us and guides us. But you're so fascinated with Mount Carmel and you're so obsessed with Mount Carmel. Brothers and sisters, we, in your patterns and practices, make space for the presence of Jesus over the excitement and the emotion of some one-time experience. We don't want a one-time experience. We don't want a once-a-summer experience at youth camp. We want the regular practice of the presence of Jesus in our lives every single day. Emotion's great. Excitement's great. I'm all for that stuff. But, but the better fuel for a life of Christ is those simple practices, those daily practices of time with Him, carving out the space. And so I'm going to ask you a question. The band's going to come back up, and they're going to lead us. And we're going to bring, to bring ourselves to a point of application here tonight. Where is it that you need Him most? Where is it that you are wallowing? Maybe not at the same level of Elijah. We know Elijah gave us a pretty extreme example here this morning. So maybe you're not there. You don't want to say that you're like Elijah and you're despairing of your very life and you're ready to die. I hope you're not there. But whether you're there or you're somewhere that could potentially lead to there, I'm going to tell you, every one of us has a point of heaviness right now. Every one of us has something that we wish were different about our lives. Every one of us has some level of brokenness. And God is here this morning to meet with you. And he's probably not going to send us a Mount Carmel experience. But he would send us a Mount Horeb experience. And he would this morning send us the sort of experience where as we're worshiping and as we're singing true words, calling out to the one true God saying, God, I need you. Really simple song. God, I need you. As we sing those words, will you make space in your heart and your mind right now for him to move in your presence? And if you feel like God is moving in you, then, then open up to him. Say, God, what next? What are you specifically calling me to? What is the application for me that you are calling me to live my life for your sake? And I'm going to tell you, the altar's open. And I would love for you to come. To come for prayer or to pray. To come forward. If you have questions about following Jesus for the first time, I'm literally right there. Come and find me. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to have that experience today of uniting with Christ for the first time. 
but I want to invite all of you. Now is the time to meet with Jesus. Now is the time for the still small voice. He's ready. Are you making space? As they, as they play, let's sing. However the Lord leads, to come forward, to stand, to kneel where you are, but let's sing and worship our Savior.